and welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I am your host, Saren Kaster, and I am not alone, as usual. I am in studio with uh, both Dave Hoster and Stefan Hostetter. Good morning. Uh, and uh, as I am taking the tech chair today, I will be slightly less chatty. So I'm actually going to pass you over to Stefan, if you're ready, to do our preview of the show and to get started. Enjoy. Yeah. <clears throat> Thanks so much, everyone. Great to have you on. Uh, I believe that was CIUT 89.5 FM, uh, mm. or one of our <laughs> wonderful radio syndicates, uh, or maybe even, uh, again, uh, our space-based podcast listeners. That's right. For everyone who's wondering, I actually thought that was part of the track for the first three loops, just so you know. <laughs> uh, but yes, we're here uh, with a jam-packed show today. Uh, we are doing a bit, uh, you know, we we thought we had got, if you had thought you had gotten all the Trans Mountain news out of our, out of our systems last week, you were wrong. I don't think it's going to end. Yes, so. yeah, that's a good point. Uh, there was a time about a year ago in which uh, in which it became very, very Trans Mountain related, uh, and it's back again. And so, Dave, we're going to start off with a with a sort of update of where we've been for the past week, uh, and, and a little bit updates, and then we'll go from there. All right. So, yes, uh, the Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain pipeline expansion, as we know, has ground to a deafening halt yet continues to gouge a widening trench in Canadian politics with our self-styled environmentalist Prime Minister Justin Trudeau ever repeating the tired notion that we simply must, quote, get our oil resources responsibly, sustainably to new markets. Trudeau believes that this project is in the best interest of all Canadians because the United States is currently Canada's only customer for its oil resources. He claims that Canada loses $15 billion a year due to the low price that bitumen fetches in the U.S. But journalist Andrew Nikiforik, writing for the TIE, writes, quote, The fictional billions that Rachel Notley, Jason Kenney, and Scott Moe claim the industry has lost due to the stalled construction of the Trans Mountain Pipeline remain the biggest lie now eroding Canadian politics and democracy. Alberta has a big problem, and it's called overproduction. Low royalties and a rubber stamp approval process have poured too much bitumen into the marketplace because the government doesn't understand the volatility of oil prices. Suncor, one of the largest oil sands miners, makes a mockery of the billion-dollar losses claim. He then quotes Suncor's annual report, which states, quote, Approximately 80% of bitumen production is upgraded to higher-priced light oil or refined, which limits Suncor's exposure to heavy crude differentials. Nikiforik states, quote, This explains why Suncor has increased dividends to its shareholders 15 years in a row. Imperial oil, which refines nearly 400,000 barrels a day, also isn't losing any money. Nevertheless, the liberals are vowing to do whatever they can to build the Trans Mountain expansion. Whether they will appeal the court ruling that revoked their license or obey the ruling and conduct new and better assessments and consultations with First Nations remains unclear. Alberta Premier Rachel Notley, who supports the pipeline, criticized the notion of real consultation, stating, quote, I reject a scenario that has us talking until everybody says yes. That's not how it can work. Bill Morneau and Justin Trudeau remain steadfast in their rhetoric of building the pipeline at all costs. Now, deep in the internet comments on globalnews.ca, <laughs> I came across an intriguing point from one Valerie Hayes. She stated, quote, They still don't get it. By repeatedly claiming that the pipeline will get built, just means that they have already made the decision, just like on the first go-round. Nothing has changed in their attitudes. The more they insist it will be built, the more they prove they are still not consulting with First Nations. 
certainly the liberals are under a lot more pressure than they would be if they had not decided to attempt to guarantee the completion of the project by purchasing it for $4.5 billion. But Global News reports that it is still unclear as to whether Canada's purchase of the pipeline has officially gone through. New Democratic Party Member of Parliament Richard Cannings asked in a recent meeting whether the sale has been finalized, but Liberal Chair James Maloney simply stated, quote, this isn't the forum for that question. CTV News Vancouver, however, is reporting that the deal closed a week ago. In any case, everyone is acting as if the deal has been closed, and the Conservatives are now demanding to be shown what precisely the Liberal government's next steps will be, putting forward a motion for six meetings to probe the Liberals' past and present handling of the project, but the Liberal majority rejected the motion and said that they are reviewing the ruling and will present their plan, quote, in the near future. Ariel de Ranger, founder and executive director of Indigenous Climate Action and member of the Athabasca Chipwin First Nation, told Democracy Now!, quote, we are out $4.5 billion in this country because of the government's lack of ability to look at the fact that indigenous rights actually hold weight. Richard Cannings said the previous conservative government failed to put in a real consultation process and the liberals failed to fix the problem as promised. Conservative MP Shannon Stubbs said, quote, At a time when Canada's oil and gas workers continue to struggle to find work, these workers deserve answers. It's clear that Canada's conservatives are the only party fighting for the hardworking women and men in Canada's resource sector and for Canadian energy and pipelines. Many point out the absurdity of this line of argument, since oil sands companies have been for years increasing shareholder dividends at the expense of their workers through a process called demanning, where you automate as much of the industry as possible in order to employ as few people as possible in order to reap the largest profits you can muster. Nikiforik states, quote, Pipelines don't put lots of people to work. They never have and never will. At one point, Kinder Morgan falsely claimed that the project would put 15,000 people to work for two years, but the economist Robin Allen discovered the real figure was closer to 2,500. The industry even boasts that it takes 10,000 fewer workers to produce 10,000 barrels of oil in 2016 than it did in 2010. He added, most economists don't support energy policy based on job creation goals. But the power of oil to construct narratives that bear little or no relation to the truth is a global phenomenon. Nikiforik's take on the whole debacle, published in the Taiyi, runs as follows. Quote, Kinder Morgan won the lottery and Canadian taxpayers lost their shirts. The highly indebted Texas firm, the bastard child of Enron, couldn't find enough investors because bitumen economics are volatile and risky. It tried to sell the project to former, Al former Alberta Premier Alison Redford, but she said no thanks to what was then a $5 billion boondoggle. The price tag then grew to $7.4 billion, but Kinder Morgan could only raise $5 billion in the marketplace. Earlier this year, it faced, the project of walking away from, it faced the prospect of walking away from the project and eating losses of nearly a billion. After Trudeau declared the project a matter of national interest, Kinder Morgan saw an easy way out. It, prompted, it promptly delivered a ransom note to Trudeau. Bail us out or say goodbye to your national interest. Without so much as a basic cost-benefit analysis, taxpayers paid $4.5 billion for 67-year-old infrastructure not worth much more than $1 billion, according to Kinder Morgan's financial statements. End quote. Kinder Morgan shareholders are expecting to make a $1.2 billion profit from the sale. 
in an interview with Democracy Now!, Winona Leduc, an activist with the Ojibwe Nation and executive director of the group Honor the Earth, pointed out that 75% of the world's mining corporations are Canadian, and that in light of climate change, Canada requires an economic restructuring. Regarding the Kingdom Morgan ruling, Leduc said, quote, Canada's approach is pretty much gunboat diplomacy, as it is in the United States. We will starve you until you come to an agreement to host a pipeline or host a mine. That's how Canada operates. That's how the U.S. operates. But this court has said, you're not going to do that. And in fact, you're going to have to get consent from these people. So it's a very, very important decision for all of us. In the same interview, Ariel Deranger said, quote, Our communities are put in economic hostage situations. As the oil sands are the number one employer in the region, our communities are forced to make really hard decisions. Our leadership has been coerced through bribery, through coercion by the government, coercion by the companies themselves to make deals. People don't know what to do anymore. They feel really locked into this economy. And they feel forced to make decisions that they don't necessarily agree with. And we're not really being given any other options. But we're seeing that the courts are finally siding with First Nations. And this really draws a lot of attention to the failing consultation process. And I hope that we can take the steps that to actually really take a look at what that means for the long term for our nations and, what to, and look to actively implementing UN standards of free, prior, and informed consent in this country. Because I think if that were the case, we would not see a lot of these projects approved and we would see a much healthier, safe environment, not just for the generations now, but for future generations. All right. So I'm, I'm just going to give a, a quick... Uh, I'm going to give a quick quote uh, before um, before jumping in, which is, uh, quote, it is time for Canada to have a renewed nation-to-nation relationship with Indigenous peoples based on recognition, rights, respect, cooperation, and partnership. This is both the right thing to do and the sure path to economic growth. Uh, so the question to two of you is, can you guess where I pulled that quote from? That's the Prime Minister. Uh, all right, we've got one prime minister guest, Sarah Neal. Uh, nation to nation is Mr. Trudeau's favorite phrase. That is true. <laughs> it is from the liberal website uh, that they ran on in 2016. Uh, that is the promising a new nation to nation process, which apparently seems almost identical to the old nation to nation process, mm. which of course was not that at all. Mm. Um, I. I, I think I, I don't have many more quotes on I don't have many more thoughts on, on Trudeau's angle on this given it's you know it's just I do well yes <laughs> 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 like uh, from a standpoint you know r- really from a standpoint of uh, the, the Liberal Party came out in 2016 with uh, a variety of uh, actually don't 2015 I guess is when the election was uh, with a variety of uh, of promises and the only promise they seem to really really care about is this pipeline like you know like if they cared as much as much about about changing our voting system even half as much about changing our voting system as they do about getting this pipeline built we would be done with first past the post and we would be in a and we'd be in a better place for it mm-hmm. uh, you know if we if they cared half as much about a new nation nation process this we would not even be having this conversation you know, it becomes pretty clear pretty quickly the things that the liberal that the liberal government uh, are are willing to basically renege on and the things that they are not. And, and, and it appears that the only thing that Trudeau really cares about is, is getting this pipeline built. Uh, like, even, even, the, even the work they've done recently of, 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 decreasing, the, uh, uh, you know, of decreasing the standards for, for what, the, what the carbon price across Canada will need to be 
is proof that that at least to me that there really is only one focus, uh, which is which is proving that they can get a pipeline built. Uh, like at some point, I almost feel like we're going to see a video of Trudeau himself literally digging a hole and trying to <laughs> shove a pipeline. You down say it. that like you're joking. But. I, 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 like I, I, this, it would no longer like twenty if twenty if twenty eighteen has taught me anything. It is no longer to presume not so other things won't happen. Um, and and it, it it's it's it just speaks to how uh, captured the Canadian economy or the idea within the Canadian ruling class that we must must must. Uh, protect uh, oil, and 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 the and to switch over to to Notley briefly, you know who la- who who yesterday said a whole bunch of words about uh, expecting a a plan from Trudeau in the next you know in in a very short timeline. Um, the the, the I mean, there are a couple of quick numbers. Notley did a thing a couple weeks ago that I think that I think was the final nail in the coffin for me uh, in regards to having a true belief that that. Uh, I guess of, 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 of that, that that there was a progressive piece to this to this government, and and it was she attended Pride, and her tweet about Pride Rachel Notley Rachel Notley which is great like she attended Pride and her and her tweet about Pride, uh, basically said something along the lines of it was great marching with at Imperial Oil, and and everyone else. Do, wow. It was an advertisement for Imperial. It was that's what it was. It was it was it was her at Pride. It was a very generic kind of politician attending attending the Pride Parade kind of message. Except for some reason, she had to shoehorn in the mention of Imperial Oil, uh, as if uh, like, uh, and it was just sort of like, if you if you can't even celebrate, you know, like if even your sort of like you know social socially progressive part of you can't even not be captured by by big oil, then then what are you doing? Like it's like there's you know uh, was very happy to you know there's a level of which I understand that Alberta is different and that like the agreement that she that was made a couple years ago to to get a price on oil a uh, carbon in, in Alberta was important, uh, but it is it has gone it has become it has become clear I think that that if this is what an NDP government in Alberta looks like then the idea that a that then then the left wing in Alberta needs to start finding another home. Um, and, and maybe that doesn't exist. Maybe that's just the part of the problem is that this is the closest you can get to a left-wing government uh, in Alberta, and that's just because of it. But I, I want to point out, if you look at the numbers, this is from the Alberta government, 20, 2017 employment numbers, mining and oil and gas. So it's not just, it's not just, the, it's not just, uh, it's not just oil sands. This is, this is everything. Mm. Uh, mining and oil and gas employs 140,000 people in Alberta. Important. Uh, important number, pretty good, pretty precise number. Only six point one percent of of all employees in Alberta, mm. so not a huge percentage. Uh, but like, but I think that it ends up being there in particular areas where where other things don't exist, and so they so they have an they're oversized, high paying. they're high paying, and they have an oversized sort of experience. Mm-hmm. The retail industry support uh, in in Alberta is two hundred forty one thousand. So, and that's over ten percent of the mm. of, of, of of the of the of the economy, and so. I understand that these are different paying jobs, but the idea that the that 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 somehow the six point one percent of your economy needs to be the most important thing is in part because they set up the economy to be beholden to oil because of royalties. You can like and, and they've done a decent job slowly weaning, weaning themselves off the requirement to have royalties. Like like many years ago, almost all government money in Alberta came from royalties on oil and gas. And if they've managed to move that a little bit. If you've ever had the misfortune uh, to spend any time in Ottawa, you'll t- notice that you can't turn around without bumping into a public billion that was a uh, public building that was very proudly brought to you by one oil company or another. Mm. The entire 
freaking town was built by oil money. And there's plaques up everywhere to remind you of that fact. Yeah, it's it's a like it's just it's just we have to get beyond this. And it's a broken record. So we'll move on to the other two stories just so we can we can get to it before the break. Um, But it's we just have to get beyond the idea that oil and gas need to run this company in this country, because at some point we know there's no question that at some point oil and gas will no longer be there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, we, we cannot. You know who says that? The oil companies. Everyone. Yeah. <laughs> like, 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 but like, seemingly most importantly. Well, yes, exactly. Yeah. The uh, oil companies themselves. Well, I think so, we, we covered briefly before Shell's idea that they're going to keep going into 2050. But like, ev- like there's no, the, the idea that the solution would be to continue to pump oil and then to somehow remove carbon from atmosphere in some other way is, is seemingly ridiculous. I can't even figure out exactly how it makes sense. Um, and, and it, it just sort of it is, it's, it's so short-sighted that I just I get lost uh, and so I, I hope we maybe find a leader somewhere in this country that will you know speak the truth that we have to stop accepting that this is is, is, a, is the way forward we don't have the time we don't have the ability mm. um, before we leave this yeah. section I, my, my initial uh, joke was not a joke I did have the thing I wanted to say about uh, nation to nation if we can uh, David I don't know if you have one more thing but just really quickly um for nation to nation, you would have to, there would have to be a nation, and there obviously is in a philosophical sense and in a cultural sense, but not in a legal literal sense. Mm-hmm. So it's disingenuous to say that. So to even say we want to have a nation to nation relationship with the First Nations of this country, what kind of nation to nation relationship? Like an Israel Palestine nation to nation relationship? <laughs> because you kind of seem like an occupying force that's just shoving your power down their throats and making them do whatever they want. So like. That sounds really nice, but unless you're actually going to give people the legal status of, like, unless you're going to make them a nation, you don't get to take credit for things like nation-to-nation relationship, when what you mean is we're occupying you, but we're going to put a flower on the card where we tell you what your stuff, what stuff we're taking of yours this week. Mm-hmm. Well, 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 that's the thing, right? The nation-to-nation breaks down as soon as, one, as soon as the laws say, yes, treat them like a nation, and you say no, because that's inconvenient. It's like that's that guy the, you met on the... Immediately the, breaks it down. It's like that guy you meet in the bar who uh, gets drunk and starts t- talking about what a feminists they are because they held the door open once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you doth uh, not protest too much, boast too much, perhaps. Um, uh, Smartest man ever. <laughs> very uh, big words. Very yes, big. exactly. Uh, so we, uh, we can either save these to the last section, Dave, or we can do them right now. What do you think? Uh, I think I would, uh, I'm going to go through them. All right, let's so do go it. through them both. And, and then we'll uh, go right to music break. That'll be that. Yeah. So uh, rising temperatures are already hurting crops through droughts, floods, and wildfires. And according to a new study published in the journal Science, insects, insects will also have a dramatic impact on the future of the world's food supply because it turns out that as temperatures increase, insects, appetites, and mating seasons expand. Researchers studied hundreds of different species and found that warming of 2 degrees Celsius will cause insects to consume 50% more, re- more wheat, 30% more maize, and 20% more rice. The study projects that Europe could double its pest-related wheat losses and that North America could lose 40% more maize. The U.S. stands to lose 20 million tons of maize, while China will lose 27 million tons of rice, and Europe will lose 16 million tons of wheat. The study did not include factors such as natural predators, dietary changes, farming innovation, diseases, or explosions of species growth, which are difficult to model but should not be counted out. 
We are currently seeing this kind of change impacting important forests as the pine bark beetle's voracious appetite can be seen from space. The study recommends breeding more heat and, and pest resistant plants, adopting new crop rotations and using more pesticides, the latter coming with its own set of risks. As global population is expected to reach 10 billion by 2050 and over 800 million people are already chronically hungry, we will have to figure something out. Now, a research paper published in Nature Climate Change says high CO2 makes crops less nutritious, finding that protein, iron, and zinc levels decrease 3 to 7% depending on temperature and climate. Current climate projections suggest that by 2050, an extra 170 million 175 million people will be zinc deficient, 122 million people will be protein deficient, and 1.4 billion women and children will lose over 4% of dietary iron, resulting in worse pregnancies and births. The study looked at 225 different foods and 151 countries, with the most vulnerable regions being South and Southeast Asia, Africa, and the Middle East. The US, Europe, and Australia and parts of South America had low dips in crop nutrition. The study ref reflected current eating habits and crop growths. If countries adapt or change the habits, the statistics will change. Current estimates of World Health find that 662 million people are protein deficient and 1.5 billion are zinc deficient. The study recommends that countries heavily monitor nutrition levels and grow more CO2 resistant crops and continue to lower carbon emissions. All right. So uh, that's a what a pleasant and uplifting way to go to music break. Mm. But I'm sure it's fine. Yes. Uh, all right. Music break. What about? All right. So uh, we're going to be back. Well, first, I'll just preview who we're, uh, where we're going to come back to. We're going to be coming back to Andrew Holland, who is the National Media Relations Director for the Nature Conservancy of Canada. Uh, we've spoken to them years ago. It's been quite a while. Uh, and Andrew was not there. So it'll be our first time meeting Andrew as well. And he, he's talking to us today because uh, the Nature Conservancy of Canada has also started their own podcast, which is quite different than ours. Mm. Uh, and uh, uh, I actually th I'm going to be talking to Andrew about why I think it's going to make a good companion podcast for ours. I think that to uh, are very reciprocal. So nice. we'll be very pleased to talk to Andrew when we get back with that. But first, uh, because I'm in charge of music today, uh, we're doing top 10. So here's Alyssa Guerra with Know It All. And welcome back to the Green Majority. Oh, excuse me. There, there. you go. Excuse me there. I, pardon me. Excuse me. Welcome back. You're listening to The Green Majority here uh, on CIT 89.5 FM. This is what happens when the part-time person does the tech board. Uh, so what I was just saying, and you couldn't hear me, was welcome back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIT 89.5 FM. And as I was just saying before our music break, we should have Andrew Holland on the line. Are you there, Andrew? Yes, I am. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us uh, today. As I was just saying before we uh, went to break there, uh, you are the National Media Relations Director for the Nature Conservancy of Canada. Uh, it has been our pleasure years ago to have somebody on from the Nature Conservancy of Canada, but it has been quite some time, and I don't believe you were there at the time. So thank you so much for joining us again today. Well, thanks for the opportunity. So I had uh, I had the opportunity to listen to some of the things that you sent me. We're we're speaking specifically today because the Nature Conservancy of Canada is uh, starting its own podcast series. Um, it says there's a number of episodes. So I guess my first question was: uh, Is that going to be a limited run? Or are you planning to do more? Because I understand it's a series at this point. That's correct. It is a series of seven podcasts and uh, seven episodes, I should say. And uh, our intention is to continue them. Uh, to go out into uh, different areas across the country where we're doing some really important conservation work and there's some neat stories behind these areas 
and talk to some local champions and volunteers who are really instrumental in seeing these beautiful areas protected. But in doing so, this takes time. It takes effort to go out into the field. Some of these areas are rural and remote. Uh, and then you've got to come back and, and take those interviews and the raw sound of the critters and the birds and mix it and put it all together and uh, have it polished and sounding professional. So uh, <laughs> that stuff takes time. And uh, uh, But, yes, to, to answer your question, this is a the first uh, seven episodes are, a, are part of a pilot project. But, but yes, it's our intention to definitely uh, continue it because it's important for listeners and subscribers uh, to have something to come back to, you know, and, and I, I think that's, it takes a long time to get an audience and when we get that, but the podcaster, there's a lot of value in podcasts and uh, as a way to really engage listeners and people who are interested in uh, whatever the subject matter is, whether it's health or cooking or sports, or in this case, uh, the conservation of nature and getting out into the outdoors. So, uh, Andrew, I wanted to, uh, there's a little bit of out of order question, but I wanted to jump ahead to the, just that one because I wanted to make sure I was talking about your project uh, correctly. <laughs> so now that we've established that, if I can uh, uh, bring you back to where we would normally start, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us a little about uh, Nature Conservancy of Canada. And then I did have a, listen to, uh, did have a chance to listen to the, the sample episodes that you set. So after we sort of set the stage here, uh, we'll talk a little bit more specifically about what's in the episodes. Sure. Uh, the Nature Conservancy of Canada is a registered charity. We're a not-for-profit organization. And we've operated here in Canada since 1962. Uh, started here in Ontario uh, by four gentlemen. And uh, to date, uh, you know, we, we have about 250 employees across the country as a charity. Uh, we have about 30 offices across Canada. Some of those are home-based offices because it's a big country. And a lot of our lands are not in urban centers. Uh, and so we work with willing private landowners who want to sell or donate their lands for permanent conservation. Uh, that's what we do. We, we reach out to them and we try to protect areas where there's species at risk, species that are endangered, species that are threatened or listed in a category federally here in Canada as species under, uh, under concern. Uh, so there, those are the four major categories that we work in where we try to uh, protect wetlands, forests, coastal shoreline areas, and endangered grasslands where we have endangered or threatened or rare species that need protection. And Andrew, I don't, I don't, I don't want to get pulled off into the, the political direction, but just if we can take a sidestep just really quickly, I'm, I'm just curious about, because we've just had, uh, you know, we've been talking a lot about changes of governments around here regularly. I won't ask you to comment on the politics of it specifically, and I don't really want to get too far into that, but just very generally at a very high level, um, does, do, are you affected in, in, in the, the work that you do with the Nature Conservancy of Canada by the politics of the day? Or, or it's, it's been my impression that Nature Conservancy of Canada is fairly well isolated from sort of the ebb and flow of daily politics. Is that, is that a correct assessment? That, that's, a, that's, a fair, uh, that's a fair comment. I, I mean, we, we do meet with politicians regardless of party stripe. Uh, you know, nationally, anytime we close a property uh, under, you know, under our watch, I guess, through a, a land donation or a purchase or an easement where the landowner agrees to uh, uh, preserve the land, they still own it, but they agree not to fill in the wetlands or harvest the, 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 the forests that are on the property. Anytime we finalize a project under what's called the Natural Areas Conservation Program, 
we send a letter to that member of parliament. So they could be a member of the Bloc Québécois. They could be a member of NDP or certainly the Liberal Party or the Conservative Party of Canada or even Ms. May. Although, I, in fairness, I don't know if we work in Ms. May's riding out in B.C. But um, the bottom line is we meet with all politicians to brief them on our work. We don't get a lot of funding from provincial governments. Uh, and, and, you know, some provincial governments have conservation programs that support the work that we do, and some other provinces don't. Uh, but we work with willing private landowners to uh, to conserve these areas. And these aren't government-owned lands or crown-owned properties. These are lands that are owned by logging companies or forestry operations or other businesses or corporations or usually just people, families that have had, uh, you know, wetlands or woodlots or different things in their families for 60, 80, over 100 years. Yeah. I think the, the conservation of, of private land seems to be one of the, uh, one of the things that, that if there isn't another polit- political issue sort of um, interjecting itself into it, it seems to be something about which there's a lot of agreement, uh, especially when the money can be raised to, to do it that way, of course. Um, so, I, you know, we wanted to talk mostly about your, your podcasts. Um, so I think maybe we'll, if we can uh, transition over to specifically focusing on that. And really, Andrew, what really jumped out at me uh, right out of the gate, just because it's so disparate from what we do here on our program, um, is that it is very much not our show. <laughs> and not just because uh, not just because you're not focusing on the politics, and we, of course, very much on the politics, but it's very much a journey into nature. And that's sort of something I wasn't expecting when I first started listening. I thought there might be some of that or some interviews. Um, but you've really made an attempt to take the listener with you. Perhaps you can you can take take it from there. Well, we, we do some pretty neat projects across the country. So, um, and, and the, each of these seven stories to start with are pretty compelling in the sense that we're dealing with. Uh, for example, yesterday's episode was for the province of Quebec, where we've launched uh, a provincial-wide campaign to help save turtle populations, because similar to what's happening here in Ontario, turtle populations are just being decimated by cars. They are being decimated by people driving and hitting turtles that are on the, on the road or along the side of the road. And uh, it's really impacting turtles. So we've launched a website in Quebec where people, if they sight or spot turtles, they can go to this website and geolocate where these turtles are, are being found. So that way it helps uh, inform our conservation efforts. Mm. Uh, all eight turtle species here in the province of Ontario, for example, are provincially uh, endangered uh, here in this province of Ontario. Uh, similarly, because of collisions, uh, particularly in the month of April, May, they come out of the wetlands and up into areas and they try to, uh, that's when they try to have uh, they're babies type things, so they lay along the side of the road. They try to find dry, sandy areas. And so quite often that can be along the side of a road or near a bridge or whatever. And so um, we're trying to educate the public on what they can do to slow down and keep an eye out for turtles. Um, but so this episode, for example, yesterday featured that in Quebec and talked with a, a volunteer who drives one hour uh, once a week to help volunteer on this campaign. And that's what that it speaks to having dedicated people and volunteers who care and are willing to lend a helping hand. 
And so, uh, can you maybe? Uh, I, we won't give away all the the juicy details. People will uh, will want to go and download it and listen to it. But perhaps you can maybe just uh, overview a couple of the the the, the guests, uh, some of the people that uh, you mentioned. Uh, one just there, uh, perhaps some of the people that you're speaking to, some of who the some of your interview guests are. Sure, and, and I'll start with the episode one in Alberta. There was a gentleman named Charlie Russell, who we interviewed just two weeks before he uh, he sadly passed away. Uh, I encourage all your listeners to check that podcast out. Mm. It is spectacular uh, because it, it is about preserving. We are in a race to protect the last remaining amount of grasslands in southern Alberta facing the Rocky Mountains. And this uh, Charlie Russell used to live with bears. He used to live in nature, and he's used to uh, you know, being connected to nature, being friends with bears, and saying, we should not be uh, concerned about uh, wildlife. We should be respectful of wildlife and this type of thing. So it's a very compelling listen. It's a really interesting interview. And I think that it's something that uh, will be worthwhile doing a story on for sure and, and having a listen to. Yeah, absolutely. And well, of course, uh, we're going to have links to the, the show page uh, for you so the listeners can go and uh, and look up the content. We'll be able to find that off uh, our website as well. But if you wanted to just uh, go as well, say the, the link for people, uh, you're welcome to do that uh, as well. Yeah, Nature Conservancy of Canada website, just natureconservancy.ca slash podcast. The Ontario one is uh, uh, about a property east of Aurelia. Really cool story, too. And uh, it's uh, it's got three really interesting features to it. Number one, it's about a globally rare area. It's a globally rare habitat called Alvar habitat. That's the first thing. The second thing is there's an endangered songbird uh, in this country called the Eastern Loggerhead Shrike. And this is one of two areas in Ontario. The other is in Napanee, where there's an actual effort to repopulate these endangered birds to, to give them a fighting chance. And then the third element is a, a, a wicked uh, invasive species called uh, dog strangling vine, <laughs> and that's a great name for a rock band or something. <laughs> but uh, but it, it's a it's an invasive species that's taking over a lot of open fields and different areas, and it's problematic because uh, it really outcompetes native species and native plants, and it grows very tall. And so Kristen Ferguson, who's our conservation director in the province of Ontario, she's on this podcast and, and will uh, sort of highlight our efforts to try and remove this dog-strangling vine. What is it? What's it look like? And what can people do even on their own properties if they see it? And, and what's the impact of it? So uh, it's a, it's got a good educational piece to it as well. Yeah. Yeah, no, I was really, um, I really just on a, t a technical geek point of view here, as somebody who's been doing this radio show for quite some time, I was really uh, impressed with the uh, audio quality, despite the fact that you can tell you're outside for most of the uh, most of the episodes or most of the clips that I heard. Uh, so that was great. So it's really great production value. I think uh, the content that you're going over is really really valuable. Uh, we're definitely we're gonna have a link so people can check it out. We do just have like a minute or two left, Andrew. Um, so I, perhaps with my last two minutes, I'll give you the floor. Uh, I'll give you my ten thousand foot question, which is always where we like to end heroes at a very high level um so perhaps you would just uh just tell me sort of in a larger sense in a personal sense uh what this project means to you how do you think this fits into the rest of the work with the nature conservancy and and why is it important to you well i, I think that uh it's important for for canadians and people to 
uh, feel better about things and, and be out in nature. Nature can help uh, benefit our mindset, our, our physical well-being. Uh, there's something very great to be said to being out in nature, and if you can't be out in nature, at least learn about it and learn about these special areas that, uh, that, are, that are in your communities or nearby. And, and to that point, uh, for the benefit of, of your listeners, I encourage them to go to Happy Valley Forest. It's only 30 minutes from the downtown Toronto. It's in King City. It's a large nature reserve that we have of 1,100 acres and beautiful hiking trails, particularly in the fall. The fall colors of those trees are, are quite something to see. And a lovely hiking area. And it's like I said, it's in King City, a 30-minute drive from downtown Toronto. And uh, there's no cost to get out in nature. Just go and explore, uh, bring a backpack, bring a water bottle, uh, bring a lunch. Uh, you know, just enjoy yourself, take some pictures, go geocaching, whatever. And just feel rejuvenated and recharged and, and sort of get away from the tablets and the TVs and the indoors and get out and explore and, and sort of feel connected uh, with the some of these beautiful areas, because frankly, uh, we overlook the obvious and the natural beauty that are in our areas. Andrew, I'm feeling a little bit embarrassed now. I'm sitting in front, inside in front of a panel of computer screens. But uh, <laughs> thank you so much uh, for your time. It was really a pleasure. Again, this was Andrew Holland, the National Media Relations Director for the National Conservancy of Canada. We will have links up to the National Conservancy of Canada and directly to the new podcast on our website. And I do recommend it, as I was saying earlier, as a uh, companion piece to, to this show because it's a very different tone, uh, much less likely to make you depressed. In fact, it might even make you happy. So uh, thank you very much for your time, Andrew. Have a great weekend. All right. Thank you, you too. All right. So we're going to take our second and final music break here, and then we'll be going back to the studio with Stefan and Dave to uh, wrap up, up the show. Uh, there we go. Uh, we're going to be listening to now is, what did I choose? Oh, right. This is called Primitive Evolution, Lord of Reason. Such a pretty smile with razor sharp teeth. I'm coming way out. I can feel it inside left. And welcome. You're listening to the final segment here on the Green Majority. You're listening to Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners across the country and outer space and, of course, the United States as well, uh, even some folks all over the world. Uh, with that, we have a few minutes uh, left here, so I'm going to give you right back to Stefan. Take it away. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, so the decided a little bit of a little bit of topical news. So if you are listening to our podcast, this may be this may be just missed, but a whole bunch of information that's still valuable if you've missed the the, the, the sort of thing that's tying it all together, uh, which is, of course, that tomorrow, uh, September 8th, is the uh, is a global day of action uh, f called Rise for Climate, staying real climate leadership rises from the grassroots up. And it's sort of an ongoing, uh, it's, it's, it's carrying forward from, you may have remember the, the, the march in New York City uh, in the early 2000s when we, we all thought we might get somewhere. Uh, and then the Jobs Justin Climate March that happened uh, a couple years later. And now this is sort of the next step moving forward. Uh, in trying to keep, and so, we're, we're, so the framing of this, of this episode, or this, this last part of the show, is really that trying to keep our spirits up at a time when protests could, could feel, while necessary, also a little... Uh, a little on a little difficult to sort of ramp yourself up for a little a, a, a little a, a little hard maybe doesn't match the the the, the sort of the sort of uh, assault that's currently going on perhaps is what, how I'd put it 
It's kind of like uh, kind of like brushing your teeth. You have to do it. It's necessary right. to avoid bad things happening. But you don't really necessarily feel like you've progressed because you've done it. You've just sort of mm. retained normal. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like we've seen, especially right now, we're in a place in Ontario and in the world of a pretty unprecedented assault on different parts of the environment. And so it, certainly I think today, and I guess also the way the power is being wielded especially, I feel like especially the way the power is being wielded by the Trumps and Fords of the world certainly is very... Very disempowering for the average uh, for the average person, uh, and so I think the idea here is is why we still should rise for climate. Uh, but let's sort of start. So Dave's got a bit of details on that first. But yes, it's Saturday and Sunday, so the eighth and ninth. Oh, great! Worldwide demonstration. Rise for Climate, uh, demanding a fossil fuel free world. And there are currently over 600 events planned in at least 80 countries to challenge the leaders attending the Global Climate Summit in California on September 12th, hmm. uh, mid next week. Uh, and so if you look up riseforclimate.org, you can see all the actions taking place and you could submit your own action if you're organizing something and yeah. add to the map. Yes. Uh, and so and, and especially I think this is also important at during this time is when, you know, Trump himself has directly, uh, you know, claimed it, claimed it should be illegal to protest. Uh, and, and certainly certainly Ford has not made it made it seem like he's stoked about the concept to be clear. He only meant illegal to protest him. To right. That's a good point. Right. I'm sure he would be totally stoked if, if you want to go protest. If you want to go yell at Cory Booker's office, like yes. he, by all means, yeah. he might even get a raise. Yeah. He's totally fine with that. Um, and so there's certainly, a, so that's part of it too here is like not only is it sort of, is it disempowering right now? I feel like to feel like you, the protest. It's also being actually there's there's been actions to sort of push forward against it, uh, and so and and so there's a response to that trying to protect the protest. And Dave's got some. I got to get a little bit on that. Um, sorry, what did you say? We're talking about protect. Oh, you want to protect the protest? Protect, so you, don't, you, don't want protest. To do, you don't want to do my, the. Um, we're going to end. We're going to end on. We're going to end on the happiest part. I'm trying to trying to get on a way. That's out. not happy. That's well, not happy. I don't have happy things. Okay, fine. Okay, Less we're going to end on. Dave. We'll end on different sad. <laughs> okay, fine. Well, that means we're not going to end on this beautiful, empowering speech by Ojibwe uh, activist Winona Leduc. So I'm going to say that now. That yes. Said. Okay. So. The uh, Coalition of African-American and Indigenous Activists uh, has started a movement called Protect the Protest, aimed at uh, fighting corporate lawsuits that serve to punish people for protesting. Uh, Ariel Deranger told Democracy Now!, quote, There has been a huge amount of fear placed in the local Indigenous people to stand up against these corporations. You take some photos, and within minutes you have the RCMP asking you what you're doing. There is a heavy police presence that are basically in collusion with these corporations to ensure that people don't get curious, that people are afraid to approach these sites, and many of the people in Alberta don't really feel safe in protesting. And uh, that was the real sentiment when we took, when, uh, we, that we took when we developed the Tar Sands Healing Walk, which went through the region in protest against these projects. And it was one of the first times that the people felt empowered to actually stand up and do something. But that really isn't a sentiment that's very well supported. Many people have a real fear in the region. Uh, and Ojibwe activist Winona Leduc said in the same interview, quote, I've had the system shoved down my throat for my whole life and for, you know, 200 years for my people. We've been told that this is a democracy and this is what you want. And now we want a system that works. And if the regulatory system crushes under a Canadian pipeline company, and if police are paid for by the corporation, then the system is not working. So I'm going to stand here and I'm going to make the system work. I'm going to do my damnedest to make the system work. 
And that is such an important, I think, message uh, within the context of where we're fighting right now, which is the, the idea that the, those of the, those of the people the people standing up the people sort of pushing us forward the be, the people on the streets fighting for this are deeply deeply committed to making some to making society better and to make making society you know work uh, I, I think that uh, is interesting talking about the idea of a system and working is a it is, complicates the, the the process a little bit, um, especially depending on on who's speaking. Uh, but the but the idea that that we have to find a way to to ensure that you know that because no one no one would say I, I would hope I, I and I don't believe this is the case. A majority of Canadians I would I would feel relatively confident if if I could be proven wrong in a poll, but I sincerely hope I don't. Um, the majority of Canadians would not believe that corporations should be able to hire police to to do their bidding. Mm. Uh, a majority of Canadians will I think uh, rightly believe that the, you know that that state power. Uh, should be t- held responsibly and should not be influenced by the demands uh, of, of 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 sort of these corporate organizations, and and yet time and time again we see that's sort of not the case in some ways, and, and time and time again you see the types of people who are being who are being you know who are being overly policed, uh, being a, being a very you know being being the being a very certain set of people, and and so this is this is part this is this is the problem the problem is that the the, the fight is not saying. The fight that's existing right now is not saying we want to make the system. Uh, we want to. We want to. We want to fight the system. The, the, the fight is that the system currently is broken in many obvious ways, and we need to do something to fix that. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, the the last the, the, we we are only going into to more breaking at least right now. Um, and so the last part is 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 a little bit to, to to contextualize potentially some of the fights that you know if you do find yourself in in Ontario, that 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 this protest will be sort of pushing back against um, in regards to to what's sort of happening right here. But I think the, the, the so the concepts are are, are somewhat universal. Mm. Just firstly, I think what's particularly um, poignant about the Winona uh, Leduc statement is that she's speaking about a system that has literally destroyed her entire culture and people for two yes. centuries. And she's saying, I'm going to do what I can to now make it work, which I think is amazing. But now I'm going to reverse the flow so that we do end on uh, some uh, some energy here, right. Stephen. So um, reversing the flow of my info pipe. Uh, a new analysis uh, from the Canadian federal government is claiming that Doug Ford's killing of Ontario's cap-and-trade system could begin to cause the annual pollution of 30 coal-fired plants within 12 years. Ontario's new environment minister, Rod Phillips, disputes this claim, stating that it is only accurate if you assume that they have no other plan. Phillips stated, quote, We understand that climate change is real, that human beings have an impact on the climate, and that collectively we must take action. He did not state what that action should be. Phillips claimed that Doug Ford and the Progressive Conservatives were elected, quote, with a mandate from the people of Ontario to conclude the province's trap, cap, and trade program. Uh, NDP member of provincial parliament Ian Arthur stated, quote, Ontarians are going to have to pay extra for Ford's war on the environment, from the end of green programs that put more money in their pockets to being on the hook for billions of dollars in penalties and lawsuits over ripped up contracts. This is not even taking into consideration the long-term costs and impacts climate change will have on our economy and communities. Ontarians are really paying the price for Ford to help out big polluters. Now, 
a new report on the potentials for green economic shifts put forward by a large group of governments, think tanks, and business leaders is touting the need to act quickly to end fossil fuel subsidies and develop renewable energy and effective carbon pricing in order to get a piece of the $26 trillion available through 2030 if we collectively get our act together. Not only, therefore, are we in Ontario hurting ourselves and the planet by allowing Doug Ford to kill our burgeoning green economy, but also limiting the potential for global growth and increased equality and stability. The report, put out by the Global Commission on the, on the Economy and Climate, titled Unlocking the Inclusive Growth Story of the 21st Century, calls out Doug Ford specifically and states that the next two to three years are a critical window in this transition, looking at effective carbon pricing, energy efficiency, land restoration, electric vehicles, renewable energy, the empowerment of women, and ending deforestation and fossil fuel subsidies. The report states, quote, The next two to three years are a critical window when many of the policy and investment decisions that shape the next 10 to 15 years will be taken. Analysis produced for this report found that bold action could yield to a direct economic gain of $26 trillion U.S. through to 2030 compared with business as usual. And this is likely a conservative estimate. All right, that was that was positive. We we got there. Uh, we got there just, just at the very end. Just a wee bit of positivity. I just wanted to cut in and giggle at the meeting. That's it. Only doesn't work if you assume they have no plan. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and and on so, what basis would you make that claim? <laughs> the current lack of a plan or plan to have a plan? <laughs> Absurd. Silly, Silly libs. Um, but yeah, so there's, there's, there's five minutes left, and I, I, I want to take the time briefly to, to, to look into this concept of, you know, what why you know why i will be on uh protesting tomorrow why i will be uh joining the rise for climate tomorrow mm. uh because you know again if you've been doing this for a while you've been to a lot of these uh in fact i could probably almost tell you exactly what will happen uh tomorrow <laughs> I, I don't I, I don't anticipate this to be a, a, to be too many surprises uh during this march uh or during the speeches that will that will be put uh, put forth but there, there is something about. I've been reading a little bit about the the importance and the ways that you can exercise uh, a a community of activists can find a way to care for themselves and care for each other to allow for the fight to continue, uh, because that ultimately is is the bit right is is that this transition has to happen. There's not even – this is really not a consideration uh, about whether or not – you know, we don't, we don't get options here. And so, and so the real question for me right now is how do we as environmentalists take care of each other and find a way to, 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 to keep holding, holding right this, this other world that we want to build uh, and, and t until a moment where that sort of – the window to really build that, 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 that world exists. And, and it certainly does not feel great right now. Uh, you know, with 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 a fair amount of different conservative leaders, and and so, the the idea that this kind of protest really has the opportunity to be a moment to come together uh, and and to articulate that vision, what, what what sort of what Dave's sort of ending there of the of the of the of the 
opportunity that exists in front of us, I think is is so important. You know, we've done we've done episode after episode uh, on the Planning to Win series uh, around the concept of what winning looks like, and and I and it's it was it's been rearticulated in different ways to me from different angles and different social and different social and political uh, perspectives. But this idea that as we're in a time when we're watching a whole bunch of, of, of parts of systems begin to – you can start seeing how they might collapse, uh, especially within the United States and sort of the their, – their overwhelming sense of uh, you know their, their, their crumbling infrastructure that they seem to refuse to fix. Uh, they're, they're increasingly uh, confusing and difficult to figure out how like the judicial system and who has powers to do what. Uh, and, and, you know, even this week with, with the, with the, with the op-ed to the New York times, in which basically, which was basically someone saying, I run the government in secret. You know, that was like, that was, that was what they said. Um, you know, it, like this is in this world in which the idea that demo, that we live in a democratic society is, is harder to believe. You know, they, they say ma- the conservative had a mandate to, to get rid of cap and trade. You won, you won less than 50% of the vote. The, the conservative mandate time and time again is 40% of people, a minority of people voted for us. And therefore we think we get to do something. And that's consistently shown over and over again. Uh, in part because of how bad our system was, which could have been at least begun to switch had Trudeau not dropped this ball. However, this is it for me. It's that it's that it's this idea that the best we can the best we can do right now is is to try to find a way to take care of each other uh, and 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 to keep going and keep this vision of what is the future alive. Uh, you know, and and to keep talking about this twenty six trillion dollars, uh, or you know, in, in a, or in a non economic sense, uh, given that I think it's just as important to keep showing a world in which you know you're able to you know you're able to rent and not own. Uh, in which you're able to, you know, come together in in, in settings that are non uh, that are non capitalistic. You know, like the, I, like the the, the the ways that resistance exists. The resistance is not uh, the people silently running the U.S. government while Trump ramp, ramps and randles. The resistance is the people who are coming together and feeding each other uh, and, and and taking care of each other, and, and so that they themselves can live together and continue living throughout this this current. Uh, you know, I don't want to go as far as nightmare this current nightmare that we're living through right now that to me is the resistance the resistance is the people who are making sure that we are able we are together and that we are safe and that we are able to move forward and keep envisioning the world of the future Uh, and that is why i'll be there tomorrow thank you stefan uh i will not but Stefan will be there for me. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, you've been listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. We hope you enjoyed this week's program. You can check out all the notes and everything at greenmajority.ca, where you can also find links to the show itself in case you missed something or you'd like to re-listen. Aside from that, have a good Green Week, folks, and we'll see you all very soon. <laughs>